Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks whether it really is all over for the Tories and whether Labour are on track to win and what they'd need to do to change Britain for the better. I'm Sam Friedman. And I'm Aisha Hazarika. Consider us your political Phil and Holly, but the good times of Phil and Holly, the early days. Not very happy with that comparison. <laughs> Except you're the younger, more glamorous one in this situation. <laughs> I'm Holly, all right. <laughs> you're happier with that, yeah, are you? Yeah. Okay, fine, fine. So each week we're joined by expert guests to try to determine the best path forward. And today we turn to the UK economy. Now, Labour claims its number one mission is to achieve the fastest growth in the G7, but that's much easier said than done. To restart our economy and pay for better public services, perhaps Labour needs to be more radical on things like tax and borrowing. But would they pay the price at the ballot box? So today we'll be speaking with The Economist and former Treasury Minister under George Osborne, Jim O'Neill, head of the Institute of Public Policy Research, Karis Roberts, and the Labour MP and chair of the House of Commons Business and Trade Select Committee, Darren Jones. So, Sam, what have you been up to this week? Uh, so, uh, lots of things, but one of the most interesting things was joining a, a focus group. I, I love joining focus groups now and again, just because it's a really, such a useful reminder that most people do not think about politics in the way that us political obsessives think about politics. What? I know, amazing. Most people have other things to do with their lives. Um, this was in Wickham, Steve Baker's seat uh, and a Labour target. Um, and it was with people who had voted for the Conservatives last time but were now either undecided or you know, perhaps considering Labour. And it was really interesting. It was really bleak. I mean, people are so depressed at the moment. And I think there's such dissatisfaction with the leadership of the country. I mean, they voted for Boris, some of them with more enthusiasm than others, but they kind of thought that maybe he was going to be different and then he wasn't. And they obviously were very, very sort of dismissive of the idea that he could come back and very um, negative about him. But they've sort of projected that distrust onto everyone else. So you know, asked about, you know, what about Starmer? They 
uh, were unimpressed with Starmer. But that, when asked, you know, what would it take for Keir Starmer for you to get to trust him? What would he have to do? This was nothing. There's nothing he could do to get us to trust him. But does that mean that they wouldn't vote for him? Not necessarily. I was one, one woman said at one point, well, he probably wouldn't be any better, but I guess he can't be worse. I got the impression that a lot of them wouldn't vote. And did they have much knowledge about what Keir Starmer and what the Labour Party stood for? Not really. This is not a group of people who are hugely informed about politics generally. It's interesting, and this is this is not the first time I've seen this come up in focus groups still, even at this stage. There's a lot of dislike of how he behaved during COVID still. He was criticising what the government were doing, but he didn't have any better ideas himself. So that came up a bit. But in terms of sort of the policy announcements on NHS or the economy that you've seen over the last few weeks, that's not getting through to this group. Of course, it will be getting through to other groups of people, um, but it's not getting through to this group. And what did they say about the kind of general broken Britain stuff? And what were they saying about Rishi Sunak and you know the, the difficulties he's having with his his cabinet? Yeah, I mean, there was there was no sense of um, that, that there was any support for the government. I think there's this sort of this general frustration, which again you hear every time you you go to a group or anything like that. It's just sort of nothing works. NHS is terrible. People have lots of personal stories of either of themselves or friends who've had horrible experiences on waiting lists or in A and E. The water companies is a big issue, and the fact that you know, people had spotted that bills were probably going to go up and. And yet the sort of quality of water is so bad. So there is this strong sense that nothing works. But what came through when we sort of said, do you think this is sort of impossible to get to, to recapture? Can we ever get back to repairing Britain? The sort of response was, we need leadership. We need someone to lead us out of this. And this was sense that there's this total lack of leadership in Westminster. And I do think, you know, going back to what's happening this week with Boris Johnson and, and Suella Braverman, that sense of just corruption and they're all in it for themselves is so powerful at the moment and not helped when you keep getting these stories, you know, recycled back into, into the media. I want to ask you about what you were up to this week because you were interviewing a lot of people who have a big say in the topic we're talking about today, which is the economy. Uh, you interviewed the Chancellor. I did. I had a really fascinating day with the British Chambers of Commerce. They were holding their big annual conference and it was absolutely jam-packed. I think it's come a really interesting time for them. We've just had the local elections. The business community is really interested in politics because, of course, what happens at the ballot box is massively going to affect their businesses, their boardrooms, their, their bottom line. So I interviewed... Jeremy Hunt. I interviewed the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, and I also interviewed Keir Starmer. Pretty much everybody was talking about the same thing. And this is the theme that we're going to be exploring today. Of course, it's the economy, stupid. How do we get the growth that we all want? I mean, Jeremy Hunt was interesting. He was very much making the point that, you know, he thought his plan was was working. And to some extent, that's been slightly vindicated because we've just had these IMF figures that have come out, which have been revised, which show that actually we're not going to be in recession and growth has moved up slightly. Yes, we've moved from them projecting that we'll be the worst performing G7 country to the second worst. So it's not a huge celebration, but it is a slight improvement. And I think most people now think we're not going to go into recession this year. And and probably this is the, the single slim thing they're holding on to in terms of, is there anything that might get us back towards electoral success? I mean, let's look at some of the, the problems that the country is facing. We know that Britain has record levels of debt. Debt was beginning to fall, but then we hit COVID. And of course, Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, so borrowing has gone up. Britain's a really low investment country. That's something that certainly the businesses that were at the BCC conference are really worried about. 
productivity is still pretty limp. Food inflation and energy price inflation, they're the kind of overall conditions. Yeah, it's pretty pretty bleak picture. I and mean, I think one of the things I get asked the most when I do sort of events is, is how can we possibly be in this position where we have the highest levels of like really high levels of debt, we have the highest tax burden we've ever had, and we don't have enough money for public services. How can all of these things be true at the same time? And the, the sort of simple reason for that is, is growth. There just hasn't been enough growth in the economy to provide the money that would allow you to either cut taxes or increase spending. Uh, so you end up with this sort of increasing spiral, doom loop, if you like, where in order to manage public services, you kind of put borrowing up, you tax a bit more, and then that puts us in a less competitive position economically and makes growth harder to achieve. So it feels like we've been stuck for quite a long time now, and it needs some pretty inventive thinking to get us out of this doom loop that we're in. I mean, I'm really struck by the fact that according to, to recent, and this data has been you know there for quite some time, but Labour together have done a, a recent poll which says that Labour is now more trusted to run the economy than the Conservatives. They've opened up a six-point lead. And interestingly, even though I do actually think Jeremy Hunt is quite a good, assured performer, Rachel Reeves appears to be the people's choice in terms of being Britain's next Chancellor. She's opened up a massive 26-point lead in personal favourability over Jeremy Hunt. So I find Jeremy Hunt's ratings really interesting because they're worse than any other politician in the country. has terrible ratings. And actually, it goes back to the time he was running the NHS and he was health secretary. People have really bad memories of him as health secretary. And of is, course, the junior doc, the first junior doctor right. strike. And I think that's followed him into his, his chancellorship. And they, but they haven't recovered with him as chancellor either. So yeah, there is a bit of a disconnect between the, the kind of public view and the Westminster view on Hunt. And let's now move to, to Rachel Reeves because I think she has been such a star in the Labour Party. I do think that she has really helped transform the fortunes of the Labour Party, particularly on this very difficult issue. Everyone has got positive things to say about her and her whole Treasury team, including Jonathan Reynolds, who's the, the Shadow Business Secretary. Pat McFadden is her number two there. And I think to have come in after John McDonnell and in a, in a relatively short period of time have turned things around. It's quite impressive. Well, she's also, she's also an economist, right? She actually yeah. knows what she's talking about, which is should be more common in, in politics. But actually, very few chances or shadow chances have been economists. I think the fact that she's very confident in her knowledge of the topic allows her to come across very well. Speaking of which, as we are recording this, Rachel Reeves is in Washington and she is about to make a big speech setting out her vision for Britain's economy and her approach to business. Now, they've, they've made up a new word. <laughs> Securonomics. I'm, I can't even pronounce Securonomics. it. Securonomics. It's a horrible word. I wish they'd stop doing this nonsense. I know. I Just feel like use I, normal words. I feel like making up a new word is not the answer to all of this. It's like people struggle. I mean, it's a real issue with the economy as a, a policy issue is that people don't understand the language. Like They don't know what GDP is. Yeah. They don't know what they don't really understand how inflation works. You say inflation's going to halve. They think prices Nobody understands down. what the deficit is. Like these are these def What's the difference between deficit and debt? These are really complicated questions. So adding in more like new words is probably not the way to go. The central thing that they're saying is security and they're going to respect the institutions. And of course, this big sort of headline mission is that Labour's going to achieve the highest sustained growth in the G7 and create good jobs 
And of course, the, the other thing which Rachel Reeves has been talking about, and again, this sounds very good, but Sam, we need you to sort of decode this for us. Labour's fiscal rules. Okay, so let's just have to talk a bit about what fiscal rules are, because they, it's another one of these phrases that gets thrown around all the time. Uh, people survive, glaze over, understandably. The fiscal rules are a fairly new thing still in, in sort of British economic policy. It was Gordon Brown who introduced the idea where you basically say, I have a public rule, we are not going to spend more than this amount of money. Now, you'll frame it in lots of different ways. You can say, we're going to bring the debt down, or we're going to bring the deficit down, or we're going to spend more on capital spending, but less on day-to-day spending. There's lots of ways you can frame a fiscal rule. But broadly speaking, it's basically like trying to set a a limit on your credit card. We're we're not going to go over this level and we're going to be transparent about that so that the markets know that you're serious about managing public spending. Do you just get to set your own fiscal rules? So to, can each you can just change your fiscal rules and you can just set your own fiscal yeah. rules? so we've had eight different fiscal rules in the last 10 years, right? So they keep changing um, and they keep changing because the economy keeps getting worse. Every time the economy gets worse, oh, that rule doesn't work anymore. Let's have a new rule. So I am unconvinced about how useful they are and actually convincing the markets of anything. But the point I wanted to make is because these rules are transparent, because they're being measured by the Office of Budget Responsibility, governments do feel if they can, they really want to try and hit them. And that means they make often quite bad decisions in order to hit this arbitrary number. For instance, high-speed two rail has just been delayed for a couple of years, purely so that the Treasury can hit this arbitrary fiscal rule that they've got at the moment. And that's going to cost us more money in the long run. It's going to cost us growth. It does seem very bizarre to me that we're so rigidly attached to these kind of arbitrary rules that, as you, you know, as you say, every government sets their own anyway, uh, that we end up making quite bad policy decisions. That's something I'm really keen to talk about with our guests. So is it better to not have fiscal rules or to have sort of flexible fiscal rules? Well, I think this is what we're going to get into is like... Are, are the rules that we have too rigid? Could we be more intelligent about the kind of ways that we think about managing public spending? Because you do need to manage public spending. You can't just say, have Boris Johnson as prime minister saying, oh, I fancy spending money on this and I fancy spending money on this. You need to have some way of saying, no, prime minister, you have to stop now. But what that looks like could be a lot more useful than what we have at the moment. We're just going to outline a couple of questions that you have messaged us about. And thank you so much. We really appreciate all the feedback that we're um, getting. Shivan Davis, a really great opening question. How would Labour go about ensuring that we do have the fastest growth in the G7? How are Labour going to improve public services without raising taxes? That's a great question. Yeah, and I think well, that's exactly what we're going to be discussing. You know, what what is the plan for growth? And if you don't get growth, well, then you're going to have to put up taxes if you want to fund public services. So, what's the balance there? Uh, there's a question I absolutely love from James O'Malley, uh, who says, "At the risk of admitting ignorance, and on, on economics, all of us uh, are ignorant." Busted. Um, uh, I'd like to know how we can judge when big spending becomes too much spending. And this is such a great question. It goes to the heart of what the point of fiscal rules are. It's because we don't actually know. Nobody knows what the markets are going to accept. Uh, They accepted a big increase in debt during COVID because they thought, okay, well, that's pretty sensible. Furlough is a pretty sensible scheme. We need to spend money on vaccines. Fair enough. But they saw what Quartang and Trust did as well. We're not accepting that. That's crazy. So how do you find that balance? And I think governments use fiscal rules because they're kind of scared. They don't know where that line is. And if we had a better way of assessing where that line was, policy could be a lot better. So I I think I'm really keen to discuss that question with our guests. With 
us to discuss Britain's economic outlook and what options might be available to a future government, we have the Labour MP for Bristol North West and Chair of the House of Commons Business and Trade Select Committee, Darren Jones. Hello, Darren. Hi. It's great to have you with us. We have Karis Roberts, who is the head of the Progressive Policy Think Tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research. Hello, Karis. Hello. And Jim O'Neill, who's an economist and former chairman of the Goldman Sachs Asset Management Division, who in 2015 became a a government advisor to George Osborne and a treasury minister. He's been calling for a new golden rule when it comes to the public finances. Hello, Jim. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, Karis, let's start with you. It would be probably quite helpful if you just outline, in your view, what are the biggest challenges facing the UK economy today and what might whoever comes in at the next general election look to navigate? Right now, that's quite a big uh, question and the question really is where to start. Um, But I think we can think about three main aspects of this. One is that we have very poor performance in terms of our productivity, uh, which feeds into people earning low wages. The second, I think, is that we have deep inequalities between people, but also places, which is very important to people. So we have some of Europe's richest areas, but also too many places that don't have thriving economies. And then thirdly, and perhaps what worries me is I don't think we have the foundations to get out of this mess, uh, particularly thinking, for example, about um, increasing ill health and the kind of deterioration of lots of services that people rely on to be able to participate in the economy and so on. And at the moment, that is in quite a wreckage as well. Now, at the heart of a lot of this is investment. And we have very low investment when we look at our kind of comparable countries. Um, And it's a very long-standing problem, actually. So the UK has been at the bottom, near the bottom of the pack for the best of the past 30 years. Um, And so there's a huge challenge there to think about how we increase both public, but also private investment in the economy for better outcomes. Joe, would you you agree with that that assessment? Ditto. Ditto. (laughs) Darren? Yeah, well, it's a list of problems, isn't it? And they're they're a list of structural problems that are not going to be easy to fix and will take time to turn around. But... You need, a, you know, you need a government that's willing to work with partners to try to do that. We hear this kind of pretty bleak picture, and then you look at Labour's mission, their ambition on on the economy, which is to have the fastest growth rate in the G7. You think that's quite a big gap between <laughs> that where we are now and what their ambition is. How how can we possibly sort of believe that Labour are going to be able to close that gap? Well, it's called a mission for a reason because it's ambitious and bold. And no one is suggesting that it's easy, but it shows, I think, a couple of things. One, it shows the ambition that Keir Starmer has for a a Labour government if we are to win the election. Two, it shows how, in its nature, by being the first mission, but also the mission that underpins all the other four, it's central uh, to everything that we all want to do when we get into government, if we do win the next election. And third, I think it shows well, the direction, really, from Keir to everybody in the cabinet, uh, you know, and all the ministers, that everyone has to do everything they can to try to move the dial on this in order to get the country moving. I think that's the the right and proper thing to do. So what's the plan, though? What are the kind of things that are going to make up, even at a high level, this big surge in growth? What are they going to, what are you going to do to make it happen? Well, I mean, there are a whole host of things that need to happen. And it's not just going to happen in one department or in Downing Street. It's a whole of government kind of endeavour. We've already started to show, uh, I think, symbolically some of the changes in approach. Uh, So the current government, you know, I look a lot at uh, advanced manufacturing or kind of technology and industry in the UK. And the Conservatives, as I see it, ideologically 
still think the state should just get out of the way and let the market fix its problems when the market is screaming out for more of a partnership with business. And so Johnny Reynolds, our business secretary, and obviously Rachel Reeves has talked a lot about the fact that we will reintroduce the concepts of industrial policy into government. That's one symbol that shows that we believe the state should be used in a different way to support the private sector, reform the public sector and get the country moving. Does this sound very convincing to you, Jim? I laughed about about the, the strongest growth in G7, which I've said to quite a few of the cabinet members, it, it's kind of daft, really. I, I like a lot of what's behind it, but... It's ambitious. Well, it's, a bit, it's a bit silly. I mean, on one, you know, I'm somebody that spent the best part of 40 years looking at global growth. And obviously, there's another six countries you can't do anything about how they grow directly. So, <laughs> But much more importantly than that, on in a way, it's not a really credible sign of ambition because... One of the things and part of the problematical broader world we're living in is most of those G7 countries don't grow very well either. In fact, Japan hasn't shown any net growth for 20 years. Uh, but but you're showing how it's achievable, therefore, because well, it, we, if you're going to have a thing like that, it should be at least against other countries that grow more. G7 it's, is a it's, good it's measure. Just a okay. little bit naive. Well, so, but but in terms of what you got to do about it, which I think we're going to get in. We have to get out of the conventional way of thinking that, frankly, has taken hold across the whole of the world. And we need to probably drag the IMF out of the conventional thinking of the framework for fiscal policy. But certainly here, we haven't got the slightest chance of getting out of the situation we're in unless you have a different mental approach. And Jim, just spell out what you mean by conventional thinking for our listeners. So it, it sort of became part of very conventional thinking. For example, guiding how the whole euro came into existence, that whatever was going on in life, you had to have, if you didn't have debt below 60% of GDP, it had to be there next week, despite the fact that it didn't stop them letting Italy and Belgium in, and the likelihood that any of those two were ever going to get there was kind of mad anyhow. But it, it, it reflected the, the German thinking and the, the memory of German superinflation and irresponsibility way back. And it, it's at the heart of conventional economic thought that debt is bad, and so you've got to avoid it. And one of the reasons why it's at the heart of it is because a lot of that actually is pretty sensible, but it doesn't distinguish between government spending to create more wealth and assets and government spending to consume or maintain our nice little cosy lives. Okay. And there's a huge difference. And Gordon Brown tried to do it with his golden rule and sort of messed it up because he started to fiddle it. But we need something which is a lot more ambitious but really financially credible version of that, of which uh, you do by trying to focus on more active investment spending where there are government assets and, and value to those assets to be created. How do you set your rule to differentiate between those two different types of spendings? We talked a bit in the introduction about the difference between capital and day-to-day -day spending, yeah. and that's part of it. That's it, exactly part it, of it, it, yeah. it. So how, what, what, what so, does your rule look like? So in complete contrast to the way the one and only Liz Truss went about doing it, you don't ignore important independent organisations. You give them greater power which, by the way, Labour have said they would give the OBR more power. That's definitely something that I would encourage them to do. And you ask these guys who've got independence to say, 
what are the areas of investment spending that are going to create what economists would call very strong positive multipliers? And then that constrains not only the next government, but the governments after as to, as to the sort of things you could legitimately spend on and therefore perfectly happily borrow. Or another way of saying it, and you should, you know, you'd have no problem, I think, let's say today, 95% of GDP debt. You wouldn't have any problem about it going to be 105 in the next two years because you were deliberately doing that in the knowledge that in another 10 years, it's going to be down at 80. So just to for the for the non-economists listening yeah. and very much put put my hand up here you're basically making an argument that we have always kind of viewed debt as inherently a really bad thing and what we should be looking at is actually being a bit more flexible in terms of borrowing a bit more to invest in things that will generate growth i mean we just think of it as this and it's you know, to your credit, you're not an economist because most of us aren't as clever as we like to pretend. <laughs> but uh, there's a huge difference between spending money, which is going to create very significant growth and wealth for the future. Education, some would want to have that in. Some would want preventive health. They're a little bit more subjective in my view, but take something I'm strongly involved in, so-called Northern Powerhouse Rail. Right. It's blatantly obvious yep. to really deal with the northern issues so you can create what economists, another economist phrase, an agglomeration where all these people living shorter distances than the central line can actually move around in the same way. That would probably, I don't know, $30, $40 billion of investment. That would have huge positive multipliers for the north of England. Right, so that... But unless you have, if you have this current framework, it's never going to happen. So that... My head is nodding at that. I think that sounds very good. I'm sure many of our listeners um, will. Sam, what are, what are the politics of uh, of that? So, so the issue is at the moment, as we said in the introduction, Rachel Reeves, Keir Starmer are just very focused on seeming safe and secure, and like they're not going to spend loads of money, and they're not Jeremy Corbyn and and John McDonnell, and that makes it quite hard to have this conversation, um, which makes sense to I think pretty much anyone who understands economics, which is it's worth investing in things that are going to have a return, because the media tend to think of all money as being the same and all spending as being the same, and I think that's the crux of the political difficulty here. But I wondered if like it, to just to help us understand this issue a bit more. Karis, can you talk tell us a bit about the way in which the, sort of the current fiscal rules are perhaps impeding good policy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we look at what the current fiscal rules are, there are two main fiscal rules. One is that debt to GDP is falling in the fifth year of the forecast. Um, and the other kind of main fiscal rule that people talk about is that borrowing shouldn't be more than 3% of GDP also in the fifth year of the forecast. Now, what are the problems with that? Well, one is kind of like a meta point, which is that we we talk about rules as if they're this pre-existing thing that is fixed and has to be abided by. But in reality, politicians can change them. So they, it's not just that they're marking their own homework. They're not doing that anymore. We've got the ABR, but they're setting the assignment. And if you, if you look at the past nine years, there have been six sets of targets and they were meant to last for a long time. But in fact, they only lasted less than 18 months each. But a really big problem is the kind of short-termism that these generate. So an example would be that because each time we're looking at whether the rules are met in the fifth year of the forecast, that means that politicians have quite a big incentive to spend the money now and then say that they're suddenly going to cut all the spending and raise taxes, etc. in the fifth year. 
the problem is, will it happen? Um, and so you have policies like the investment allowance being fixed for three years. And then in the fourth and fifth year, actually those allowances won't exist. And that makes that policy less effective. Um, so you have a real problem, I think, of short termism. And then I think one that maybe is often underappreciated, and this is a point that the economist Alfie Sterling has made, is that in general, our fiscal rules constrain public spending, uh, but they don't take account of the asymmetry which we have in fiscal decisions and the fact that sometimes governments underspend. And this relates to this political point because there's this huge political pressure to constrain spending. And that can result in very poor decisions where we underspend on things that actually would result in higher economic growth way into the future beyond those five years and that would put public spending on a more sustainable footing. I would just say, look, you can have fiscal rules about keeping debt under control and invest at the same time. It's not like an either or debate. So, you know, Labour through Ray Theresa said that we want to get debt falling, but equally we've announced the Green Prosperity Plan, which shows that the state has a contribution to make to increasing the dial on investment in our country, £28 billion a year over 10 years. But it's not just the state that invests in these things. We need institutional investment. And we've talked about some reforms. I know, Jim, you've looked at this in the startup scale-up review. Yeah. Um, but we also need to create the investable propositions and the circumstances in which to attract private investment to be spent. I mean, there are a whole host of infrastructure projects in the UK that could be delivered today in terms of spending, but because of public infrastructure bottlenecks, they're not happening. So you can be fiscally responsible on debt whilst investing uh, in the country and moving the dial investment. And the task is for, for, for us to do both of those things. Do you recognise the distinction, though, between different types of debt? That, and how does how do, how do Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer get people to understand that there are different types of spending, some which is more valuable than others, without being attacked as being, you know, the next Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, well, the difference there is the day-to-day -day costs and mm. how you pay for that and the the, the capital investment mm. that we're talking about. Rachel has been very, very clear, and Pat McFadden with all of the front bench teams, you know, if you want more money for day-to-day -day spending, you've got to try and find it within your existing budget. How do you make the service delivery more efficient? Whereas for capital investment, this is the Green Prosperity Plan. So we've already kind of distinguish between the two in our fiscal rules. Could you think of something like spending money on health prevention, which the current government has cut significantly, despite everyone thinking we should be spending more on it? Would that be something that Labour might consider to be investment rather than day-to-day -day spending? Well, I think the one thing I think we need to get away from in these debates is thinking it's all about just spending more money. I mean, there are things that we want to spend money on differently to the Tories. You know, we've talked about capital investment, but it's about spending and reform. So lots of our public services are, are very inefficient. They need modernising. Remember, the government isn't just writing cheques. They're using the power to convene to help create investable propositions for the private sector working in partnership with industry. And we're in charge of regulation. And at the moment, the Tories are not very good at the spending, the industrial policy or convening, or indeed the regulation. And so whenever you talk to businesses in most sectors, they say that on all three measures, the current government is failing. So Keir Starmer talks a lot about hope. And of course, there is a lot of talk about reform. But if you do want to send a signal of hope for change, that does involve some spending, that does involve some cold, hard cash, whether that is the money to invest in skilling up your, your workforce, building your infrastructure, building your better schools, hospitals, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. What do you say to our listeners? I wouldn't include building more hospitals. Okay, fair enough. But you know that you get the point. But what, what do you say Prevention. to our listeners? What do you say to our listeners who are like, I want a Labour government, I want a change of government, but I kind of keep hearing 
that everything's going to change trans magically through reform, but there isn't going to be that much money. What do you say to them? Well, there's a couple of things. First, we've got to be frank that the state of the country means that none of this is going to be easy. We're not going to be able to transform the country overnight, and it will take a long time to do that. But you need a government with the energy and the ideas to want to do it. And I think I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But you look at the you know, Conservative government, they've run out of ideas, they've run out of energy, and they argue, they're arguing amongst themselves. And I think people see, feel, and experience the consequence of that in their daily lives, whether it's at work or how they access public services or see Britain's role in the world. So at the political level, the hope thing is that that can be different, but you need a party that wants to be in government with the idea and energy so to, to change that. Is your big argument basically we're going to give you hope because we're better. We're not going to have a lot more money, but we're going to be better at it. We're going to have you know, more enthusiasm, better values. We're just going to be better. Well, we are going to be better. We do have new ideas. But, the, you know, the reform question is, imp- I mean, you laugh, but this is politics, right? It's a competition of ideas. What are the ideas from the Tories right now? More of the same. More of the same of what? Decline. I mean, it's just unacceptable. So you do need new ideas and we need to persuade the public that they can vote for that well, and bring in that can change. I ju- am I allowed to jump in? You can you jump are. in whenever you like. The, the only thing I, I kind of hear... Dan, but there's a sort of a tone of like trust us before we get in. But this investment problem isn't just because of this lot we've had for 13 years. It's been there quite a long time. It's part of the sort of Westminster and broader economics consensus that this is the framework we have to adhere to. And you touched on, you know, obviously you can't magic up growth of 3% or more on day two of being in office. But if you enter it with the spirit of we're inheriting a really bad economy and we can't really do much, how do you get out of it? I didn't and say you, we can't do you much. Can't, you can't get out of it unless you have a different framework. And one of the things that New Labour did was they created a proper independent central bank. And it was pretty radical what these guys did. And I think Keir and Rachel and team I've got to have a little bit more self-belief. I would just say, if you look at the local election campaign a few weeks ago, the Labour Party does have a confident message. Keir and Rachel are confident in what they're offering the public. And I think you'll see that in the run-up to the general election. Karis? I can partially agree with Darren, because I do think it is hugely important that we don't treat public investment like one big monolith. It hugely matters what it goes on, and it hugely matters how you spend it. So I'm very heartened to see uh, Rachel Reeves' plan, for example, to have an ambitious, muscular, active state trying to shape the economy towards good outcomes. That being said, that part of kind of what it's spent on It's quite a traditional way of thinking about borrowing, which is it should only go on kind of roads and hard infrastructure. Whereas an economist's view should really be, does this generate more growth than it's costing us? And why on earth would that be restricted to things built with bricks and mortar? We should be properly looking at the evidence on whether things like childcare or other forms of social infrastructure could be part of that. One of the themes I think that's already emerging from this series is is this sort of sense of honesty. And I talked at the beginning about how I did was at a focus group earlier this week, and 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 there's this incredible sense from the public that they did, there's no trust at all for politicians, any party. There's just this sense that they've been lied to and lied to and lied to. We talked about Brexit last week. There's a bit of dishonesty about Brexit. <laughs> yeah, you know, we talk we're talking about the economy this week, and there's a bit of dishonesty about the economy. You know, 
in reality, our public services are in a real mess. There are lots of things we could do to get growth, but it's going to take a little while because we're in a hole at the moment. The likelihood is that taxes are going to have to go up because we just don't have enough money. You know, it's reform, yes, but you do need money to make public services work. I mean, do you think that's fair, Jim? Well, what is interesting about that is I can't remember the name of the opinion poll survey that has done this test of people's attitudes towards tax for a good 30-odd years. Uh, it might be more. Is it British Social Attitudes Survey? Yeah, it's probably that. Of, yeah. And I'm pretty sure the past few years, that suggests people would be actually quite happy to pay more tax. Uh, I see it as part of the sort of group think still of the past 20-odd years. Because you, you're right to point that out, and you do see Kieran and Rachel and everybody sort of a bit frozen by this. Oh, we, you know, we can't raise tax because that's not how you... Win an election. But, yeah, but can, just to jump in, as somebody who's got the scars on my back of, of you know, being a sort of comms person for the Labour Party for yeah. many, many years, I mean, that is the gift that the right-wing press and the Tories are just waiting for Labour to be like, Did, we're doing really well, but here's our new announcement, we're going to raise loads of taxes, people. No, I understand that, and it's tricky, but going back to the honesty point, you can't, you know, and this idea of having the strongest growth rate in the G7, you can't just conjure it out of nowhere. I mean, you've got to do something to get it. The, the thing that the thing that for, I mean, obviously, tax is always an important issue at election time because it obviously affects most people. But the thing that frustrates me is I just think it's the wrong debate when you're looking at the state. Our public services are in absolute dire need for reform. The quality of service that people are receiving is not good enough. The cost goes up and up and up. We've got to get onto the debate about reform, not just how do we keep raising more money and throwing at it. I am convinced that we can transform our public services and we could use the new Department for Science and Technology to help us do that, improve uh, user outcomes and reduce cost. But you've got to be committed to reform those, for that those, to are, those are not mutually exclusive things, right? Like, I mean, Tony Blair did a lot of reform, but he also put in a lot of money to make that reform work. I mean, the two well, things are together, right? so I, That's the capital investment. Jim. I raised something also very sensitive, stroke controversial in this regard. In addition to believing we need this new framework for fiscal policy, I have become more and more convinced in my own head that actually we should have a goal of reducing the amount of money we spend as a share of GDP on the maintenance side of the NHS. At the end of the 1970s, we spent more on education as a share of GDP than we did on health. And today it's nearly four times the opposite. It's utter insanity that we do that. And you listen to some of the things from all the evidence within the health service. They haven't even got a technology system which allows proper discussion to go on between all these exceedingly complicated different areas. It is madness. So why on earth should anybody be spending more money on that? But isn't that also because our kind of health has deteriorated so much and there's there's lots of different reasons for that. And we're going to do a sort of health special on that. But I mean, Dan, I totally take your point about reform and I think technology can play a huge part. I think AI can play a huge part. A really interesting discussion sure, with should. an expert, you know, radiologist who was saying that actually AI could be transformative in terms of how we assess cancer scans and things like that. Everybody wants to get to that, to that place, but it will take some money. And because... The NHS has been on a sort of like ration of, of money for a, for a while through the austerity years. I know Jim's going to. It's get, not true though. But, but, it's no, not but the true. figures for do, the, the past fig- decade, everything else in public spending has been on a ration. 
to keep up support for the health. But demand has still demand has still gone up. So the point is, I think people understand the reform message, but they get nervous about how Labour is going to fund the reform. Sure. Well, to go back to the start of our conversation, there's this difference between capital and day-to-day spending. But you have to grapple this issue because the demographic problem that Jim's been talking about, as a population, one of the reasons we spend more on health and education now is because more people are older. And we have a decline in the number of economically active people, partly because of the age profile, but also partly because of the ill health issue. And that's a restriction on economic growth and the amount of tax coming in to pay for day-to-day costs. But that goes back to the question of reform. Like we're not going to have more people in work paying more taxes, bringing more revenue into the treasury. What we have to do is try and make the private sector more productive, again using technology probably, to help workers be able to earn more and then pay more tax. We need businesses to be more successful. If you look at the the productivity data for the NHS and social care, it is absolutely abysmal. Completely. If you were to build a state today, you wouldn't. Contrary to the spirit of what you said. The current debate is we can't dream of doing anything other than supporting more money for NHS. And even now this idea of a special tax just to put more money into that. Why? What is it actually achieving for the long term okay, benefit Okay, what do you think country? about this? Do you think we should be spending less money on the NHS? I think, we, <laughs> uh, I think everyone wishes we could spend less money on the NHS. Um, I do think it can be made much more productive and we can invest in prevention but the demographic challenge is just going to make that difficult and I think people hearing this it's not just the NHS either across services I think it's really clear that we do need more investment in them that needs to come alongside reform we absolutely need both and I do understand why Labour are cautious about this before a general election but you know after a general election a Labour government would be hit by several crises, I think, mm. pretty quickly, and, and it would need investment. Just to go back to a brilliant question from one of our listeners, James O'Malley, at the start of this, he asked a brilliant sort of basic question. He's like, I'm not an economist. Good for him. How much is too much spending? And how do you know when you've how hit do you too know much when spending? you've got which at the moment we only seem to know when the markets freak out, as they did with Quarteng and Trust. And that's one of the things that creates a sort of fear about about uh, not meeting a debt-based fiscal rule. Is there a way we could be more intelligent about knowing when we're going to hit that limit? That's, as I say, at the core of my suggestion is you need to give the power to those that independently think about these things that aren't part of the political process. And I'm pretty sure financial markets trust them more than listening to words coming out of an elected politician's mouth. That's that's the only way you can try and do it, Sam, in my view. Although we're elected, so we should say things. But I mean, I would, I would, I would just flip the debate. One of my biggest frustrations with government is they always come and say, "Oh, Darren, we're doing something on X because we've announced 150 million pounds." I'm like, "How did you come up with that number? Like 150 million pounds for what?" It's always a round number as well. Yeah. What yeah. is the output? Have you actually done the work to explain to me and others? what it is you want to achieve, what the public or parliament will see in terms of you achieving that outcome, and then how you kind of did the math around that to come up with the £150 million. So we shouldn't be talking about how much should we spend. We should be talking about what do we want the state to deliver for people and how are we going to get there? Right, we are coming to the end of our time. What a fascinating discussion we've had. Now, the exam question that we set for all our guests. Uh, Karis, I'm going to pick on you first. Do you think... The Tories have lost economic credibility and do you think Labour is passing the power test on the economy? 
I mean, on that first question, I think you could ask most people in the street whether they think the Conservatives have a grip on the economy. And right now, the answer would be no, uh, given how people are experiencing the economy and inflation right now. On the question of whether Labour's passed the power test, I think they've set out clear, credible plans on the kind of approach to the economy they would have and what they would do uh, to generate growth. I do think once in government, there's not a question of public spending and how much we have taxes and so on is going to become rather key. Jim O'Neill. I am a crossbencher, so <laughs> I should not really answer that no, question. No, you have to answer the question. <laughs> um, you must answer listen, the question. I, think, I put it to you, <laughs> my lord. I think the opinion polls, they clearly suggest the Tories have lost uh, support for competence on economics. But they also suggest to me the public isn't convinced yet about Labour. Darren Jones. Well, look, no one is saying the government is easy uh, and Labour said a lot and we've got more to say in the run-up to the general election. Uh, Of course, I think we are ready and prepared for government and I want to be in government. The note of caution on the Tories is, you know, I could spend hours criticising all of their failures. But on the number of seats that they have and the number of seats that Labour needs to gain in order to form a majority, even though we are now consistently ahead in the polls and we're pleased with that, that jump is unprecedented. And so we do not take the scale of the challenge of the next election lightly. We are not complacent at all. And we know we've got to work really, really hard, not just at the national level, but in local communities right across the country to form that majority. So uh, what do we what do we take out of all of that? I think I think what was really interesting to me is this sort of question of honesty again. And I see it in the way that Starmer talks about public sector reform, the way that you know people like West Streeting, Rachel Reeves. There's this sense that reform and spending money are opposites, and they're just not opposites. Reform costs money. In the long run, it might save you money. And I, you know, Jim's absolutely right that it would be. You know, there's a lot of things we could do to make the NHS more productive. But you have to make upfront investment to to release that reform. Uh, Blair and Brown, you know, they did a lot of reform, a lot of very controversial reform, and they and they got a lot of stick for it. But they also, between 2000 and 2005, NHS spending went up nine percent a year. Massive sums of money were going into the NHS. Massive sums of money were going into schools. And that gave them the platform to do the reform. Now, clearly, uh, a Labour government would not have those kinds of resources. We don't have that level of economic growth at the moment that Blair and Brown inherited. But to, to pretend that you're not going to have to spend any money to achieve this reform or, or that you're going to, it's almost a replacement for spending money, I find, I find difficult. Yeah, I think I probably agree with quite a lot of that. I mean, I kind of understand why the Labour Party are definitely going for a safety first approach on this. They just, regardless of what Jim O'Neill said, who I thought put forward a fascinating argument about kind of being more flexible with your fiscal rules and and kind of really having a big re-education about how we discuss debt. Labour ain't going to be able to sort of educate the public and and certain sections of the press in the time for the next general election. So they can't go down that argument. I think it's a noble argument. I just don't think Labour can do that now. So I think Labour has got to carry on with a safety first message. But I think this honesty question is big and it feeds back to what you were saying about those focus groups where they feel quite unenthused because trust is so low in all politicians. They're so fed up with everybody right now. And I also think people pick up on the on the kind of defensiveness of it all. I think they, you know, they want leadership and sometimes leadership means telling people stuff they don't particularly want to hear. 
And I kind of think people are almost ready to be told that, you know, there's a sense that everyone's been pretending to us for a very long time. And if someone would just take rip off the plaster and tell us like it truly is, they'd get some respect for that, even if... They might not win the election. They might not win the election. <laughs> No, I can't. At least we they go down gloriously with their heads held high. Because they won the argument. But then you're going to get to the point after the election where you're going to have all of these kind of home truths all hitting at once. They're going to have to sort of change position on Brexit a bit. They're going to have to, yeah, and you know what they're going to do as well. They're going to they're going to Keir Starmer will do a speech on like day fifteen or whatever, saying we've now we've looked at the books and it's so much worse than we thought it would possibly be. So you know the Tories have ruined everything. So actually we're going to have to take some tough decisions around tax. Yeah, you can you can see that they're going to have to change position on some of that stuff. Uh, and I don't think you no, know, obviously the public who are not following politics day to day like we are, I think it's more intuitive, but that sense that that, that people at the moment are not telling them the truth is, can, is, is sort of leading to this sort of sense of frustration and apathy. And the fact that what we're seeing at the moment is a big anti-Tory vote rather than a pro-Labour vote. <laughs> I've just depressed you into, into silence. <laughs> I'm done. I've got, <laughs> I've got nothing left to give. Just weeping, just rocking and weeping gently. It's like, is this fundamental problem of the Labour Party, which you experience directly, is like something. Like, I'll tell you what's really funny about our discussions. Sam's now more left wing. I know. Oh, you're meant to be the Tory, and you're coming at it from like more I left wing. Know. I'm like, come on, just be calm. We've got to like, we can't frighten the horses. You're like, we need more money. But I think the public are in such a different place from where they were in 2010 or even 2015. You know, the, the austerity argument. People bought the austerity argument. We can argue about it now. A lot of our listeners will say it was a disaster and you know but but and it was and it and it was in many ways but in 2010 and in 2015 people bought okay. Osborne's so, economic argument and I just don't think they're buying yeah. the government and I think to be now. fair and I was thinking about that on the way in if Labour's going to start changing the narrative on that which you could argue they should do they've sort of got to be quite bold and they've got to have they've got to make a strong choice about doing that now but that is really really high risk thanks so much for listening to this episode we've packed an awful lot in today you know we have looked at our numbers there are other people listening to this show other than well, i actually don't think my mum has listened to it yet <laughs> my dad's listened to it he liked After it all that yeah i can categorically say my mum has not listened to it and has no intention of however listening some to other it. people have listened to it which is very nice we have got quite a lot of people downloading these episodes which is which is really great so what did you think of our discussion today get in touch with your thoughts on what we should be talking about in future episodes any questions you had about what we talked about today and your feedback is so helpful to us because it has really helped us shape this episode. You can tweet at The Paratest. You can email us on pod at theparatest.co.uk. Uh, you can also tweet Sam and I directly. You can also subscribe to our Substack and become a founding member, which gets you access to episodes before anyone else, ad-free and the exclusive opportunity to join our wee community. So do subscribe, rate and review us wherever you're listening and join us next time when we will be turning attention to another tricky topic immigration planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.